morning, folks. I'm Val, and I'm a member of the church, and I'd like to bring us the Bible reading for this morning. And that can be found in Ephesians 5. Probably a good idea if you either look on your phone or if you find the page in the Bible in front of you, which is page 1176. Page 1176, Ephesians chapter 5, and we're starting at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Thank you very much, Val. And uh, yeah, it'd be great if you can uh, keep those verses open. Uh, for those of you who are new around here, my name's John Risbridger, one of the uh, ministers of the church. And uh, again, really glad to welcome you uh, to Above Bar today. Well, I don't know how you uh, reacted to the passage that was uh, just read to us, but just to kind of name it, um, it's a tricky passage for 21st century Western ears to hear, isn't it? And uh, I'm only going to be talking for about 15 minutes, so in a short talk... Um, I'm not going to be able to answer every possible question. But I want to just say up front, as far as I can see, having looked at it quite closely, Paul is not here giving us the hierarchical view of marriage that people often assume he is, but rather what I'm going to call a reciprocal or a mutual view of marriage, which is actually very realistic and very relevant and actually very important for us whether or not we are married. Actually, maybe like Paul who wrote these words, you're single but you care about supporting marriages. If so, this is important for you 
as well. So I'm going to spend a few minutes trying to explain and convince you of what Paul is talking about here. And then I'm going to interview Helen Savage to help us see how some of this lands a bit more practically. I want you to remember, for those of you who've been here through this kind of study in Ephesians, I want you to remember how we got to where we are. This letter we call Ephesians is about God's ultimate plan to heal and unite a diverse and fragmented world in and through Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Healing a diverse, fragmented world so that it finds its unity in Jesus. And the call of this letter to Christians is to say that we are meant to live that unity now in all of our relationships. And we've already had some kind of outline examples given as we've gone through uh, the second part of Ephesians. But the first one that Paul works out in real detail is the marriage relationship. Why does he do that? Well, I think it's because marriage is intended to be a particular and symbolic representation of two becoming one, of diversity being united in Jesus. In fact, you get exactly that language, quoting from Genesis in verse 31, talking about marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Male, female, diversity, united as one in marriage. So marriage is meant to be something of a picture of God's whole plan to bring unity to this diverse world. So what could be more important or indeed more challenging than to think about how the unity that Ephesians is speaking about would get lived in homes and families and marriages. This is where it all begins and actually it is the most challenging space for it because this is the space where where life is shared and where the decisions of one person have the most direct and immediate implications for another person. If we can't work out unity here, we're not going to be able to work it out anywhere else. So that's how we got here. Second thing we need to realize is that the way that we hear Paul in these verses is in many ways the precise opposite to how he would have been heard in his own culture. Now, this is slightly controversial, so bear with me. Because the culture in which Paul wrote, although mixed in its view on men and women, was predominantly a culture which saw women as subordinate and actually inferior to men, and then regarded wives often as the possession of their husbands. That's the background into which Paul is speaking. Now, in that world, in that culture, Paul's talk about wives submitting to their husbands would barely have registered even as an issue. Now, the shock in what he's saying is in the way that he counterbalances and, to be honest, almost subverts the very idea of submission by telling husbands that they had no right to demand whatever that they wanted from their wives, but instead should give themselves up for their wives in costly sacrificial love, just in the way that we saw from the Kennedy family earlier on. But that was the real shock. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the amazing bit in the text here. And I think if we're going to really hear Paul, we've got to realize 
that that was the corrective, that was the shock in what he said. The third thing we need to see is that everything Paul goes on to say in this passage is governed by the starting principle of mutual or reciprocal submission in verse 21. Verse 21, submit to one another, one another notes, everyone, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, a lot of writers really struggle with that verse because on the surface, it frankly doesn't make sense. The word in the, uh, in the Greek is the word hypotasso, and that usually implies an ordering of relationships where somebody is above someone else. It implies a one-way hierarchy, to call it what it is. But how can you have mutual submission in a one-way hierarchy? Doesn't make sense. You can't. Now, in a world which is rightly and deeply concerned about violence against women, telling husbands that they have unilateral authority over their wives is deeply problematic, which is why I am so glad that Paul didn't say that. He really doesn't. It's nowhere in the text here. To me, the only way to square the circle on mutual submission is to acknowledge that all the way through this section, Paul is intentionally redefining traditional power relationships, not as one-way hierarchies in which one person is always in charge, but as relationships of reciprocal counterbalancing responsibilities in which all of us, husbands, wives, managers, staff, parents, or children, to quote Philippians 2 verse 3, in humility value others above, note that word, above ourselves. All of us conducting our relationships that way. So within that context, what is Paul saying to wives and to husbands? Well, first of all, to wives, I think the best summary would be something like this. Wives, your husband is responsible before God to help you grow into everything God created you to be. So please, respect and respond to his initiative. That, as far as I can see, is the best way of understanding what Paul says. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands, uh, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. So the call to submission here seems to be based on what Paul describes as the headship of the husband, which is itself modeled on Christ's headship in the church. Ah, oh, we say, I've got it then. Paul's saying, when it comes to the home, the husband is the CEO. Not too fast. Don't go there. What does Paul actually mean by this picture of headship? Because actually it's a picture that has already appeared in Ephesians twice. Back in Ephesians 1 verse 22, Christ is head over all things for the church. Now in that context, his headship is clearly a headship of authority. But notice, in Ephesians 1, his headship is not over the church. His headship is over all things 
for the church. Profound distinction. But then the idea of headship occurs again in chapter 4 and in verses 15 and 16, where it's very, very different. You might want to just turn back and have a look. In the middle of uh, Ephesians 4 verse 15, uh, it talks about uh, Christ, who is the head, from him, from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, I put it to you that that is the model that Paul has in mind when he's talking about the headship of Jesus over the church and the headship of the husband in relation to his wife. Because as Ephesians 5 goes on, this is exactly the language he uses of the husband having responsibility to see, the, uh, to see his wife grow and flourish and develop, which is exactly what is being described here in Ephesians chapter 4. So as head of the church, Christ is the source of its nurture, its growth, it's building up. He is its healer and its savior. And that is Paul's analogy for the husband's role. And as the husband takes the initiative to fulfill that role within the family, the submission of wives is to be respectful and responsive to that initiative rather than resistant or dismissive. But then to husbands, verse 25 and remember, this is the shock. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Did you, did you clock that? Did you clock it? There's not a shred of an instruction here to husbands to take authority, to assert themselves, to be in control. And frankly, to use what Paul says here to justify any kind of coercive control or power of husbands over their wives is completely out of order and completely to misunderstand what he's saying. We need to be clear about that. No, the call to husbands is a call to love, and specifically to love as Christ loved the church, which means to give yourself up for your wife, verse 25. To seek her growth in purity and holiness, verses 26 and 7. And to care for her as tenderly and attentively as you care for yourself, verses 28 to 32. Because, and this is the argument if you follow it through there, you're to care for her as you care for yourself because as her husband, you are so profoundly one with her that to injure her or diminish her is to injure or diminish yourself. That's the language. That's the argument. To quote one scholar, Andrew Bartlett, if Ephesians 5 crowns the husband, it is with a crown of thorns, a reference to Jesus giving himself on the cross for the church. But what's the point of all this? Where does this land? Why is this even significant? It is all I'm trying to do this morning to say that somehow maybe Paul is kind of off the hook after all? No. The point is that Christian marriages are meant to be places of growth, of flourishing. Husbands, you have a job to do. And it isn't just to impose your will in your home. 
Neither is it just to have an easy life with nothing really to bother you. No, you have a task, which is to help your wife become all that God created her to be. That she should grow in godliness, in purity, in fruitfulness. That's your job. And it isn't a job that you can fulfill just by doing nothing. It's an active job. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. So here's the challenge to us as husbands, those of us that are husbands. What are we doing to help our wives become all that Jesus made them to be? That's where this passage lands. How does your example, my example, help our wives to grow? How does our attitude to church help our wives to grow? Or does it just feed them with cynicism and disappointment? How does your prayer life help your wife to grow? How do your choices prefer your wife and enrich her life to make her more like Jesus? That's where the rub of the passage is. Now, no one would ever teach that it isn't also right for a wife to love her husband, would they? We would all, can we agree on that? We would all say a wife should love her husband and should seek his growth and his flourishing. That's obvious. And I want to say, if we are to take seriously what Paul says about mutual submission, I think we also have to say that it's right for husbands to submit to their wives too and to be responsive to their initiative. Let me tell you about our home. Do I, does Alison submit to me in everything? Do I take the lead in our home in everything? I'm sorry, I don't. And I don't know any healthy marriage that works like that. Because there's a whole pile of stuff where Alison is much better than me. And so I yield to her initiative. And yes, there are some areas where maybe I'm a little bit better than her. And she will yield to mine so that together we are so much stronger than we could be apart. And actually, how different anyway are these two commands to submit and to love? Just think about it. To submit is to give up our control to another, whereas to love is to give up our very selves to another. Can you see they're almost two sides of the same coin? They belong so closely together that we can drive no wedge between them. So this is Paul's vision of marriage, not hierarchical, but mutual, reciprocal, and beautiful. A relationship where husband and wife both help each other to thrive and to grow into all that Jesus made them to be. And of course, his vision for parenting is not identical, but it's fairly similar. We don't have time for a deep dive there. Just notice where it lands, verse 4. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Friends, that doesn't mean take your kids to church and hope you can contract out this responsibility to the youth and kids team. That's not what it means, okay? What it means is that God gives you that responsibility if you're a parent. He's entrusting you with the spiritual growth of any children that he brings into your family. Yes, of course, in partnership with others, but he's entrusting you with their spiritual growth 
and nurture. That's another whole sermon we don't have time for. But back to marriage for a moment. If Paul's vision is so reciprocal, why does he still, because he does, why does he still call wives to submission and husbands to love? Why does he? Well, not, as we've seen, because he's teaching a one-way hierarchy in marriage. So why then? Well, perhaps it is because he understands us better than we think. Perhaps it is because he understands that typically the deepest emotional needs of men and women are not quite the same, with men particularly often needing to know that they are respected and women particularly needing to know that they are loved. Of course, the converse is true as well. But the people who know about this stuff tell me that empirically this is exactly right, that typically women need to know that they are loved and that men particularly need to know that they are respected. And that, of course, is exactly where Paul lands in verse 33. Each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Well, if all of that feels a bit challenging, and I hope it does, it certainly does for me, two quick pieces of good news. The first is that, as Jonathan said to us a few weeks ago, the whole of this passage actually rests on the command in verse 18 to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're married, the Holy Spirit wants to be involved in your marriage. God is for your marriage and present by, your spirit, by his spirit within that marriage, standing with you to build and grow that partnership. But second, human help is also at hand. Helen Savage is one of a number of people in our church with a great heart and shed loads of experience in supporting marriages. And so I'm going to ask her now just to come and help us explore some of this a little bit more practically. Helen, thanks so much. This is Helen, if you don't know her. And uh, Helen is the CEO of Southampton Family Trust. So, Helen, as you work with couples and relationships, just give us a bit of a sense of what that work is all about. Yeah, sure. So just to introduce myself, um, I know lots of you here, uh, but lots of you won't know me. So I'm Helen. I'm married to Tim. Uh, we've been married for about 22 years, and we've been coming to Above Bar since we turned up on the doorstep as an engaged couple and said we need marriage prep. We've been told we need marriage prep. And Paul and Di Alcock said, well, we can do that. <laughs> Just turned up out of nowhere. And we've been coming to Above Bar ever since. So 22 years. Um, so just a bit about my, uh, so my professional background is that I used to be a family lawyer. So working with couples, obviously, who were separating. Um, don't do that anymore. I now kind of have two jobs. So I ha I'm a family mediator. So I work with couples who are separating still with them both in the same room and trying to keep them out of court and help them to co-parent really well um, when they're living separately. And then my other job, which is three days a week, is I'm the CEO of Southampton Family Trust, which is a Christian charity which supports vulnerable families in Southampton. So we support all families, but we have a particular emphasis on families struggling with disadvantage, um, poverty, neglect, abuse. So lots and lots of big issues. Um, so my role kind of involves running the charity, doing all the boring stuff, the accounts, the funding applications, but also my particular focus is working with couples, uh, and this with trying to keep them together. Um, so we use something called Prepare Enrich, which is a relationship education tool that's quite widely used um, internationally, but less used in the UK. 
Um, I probably worked with a few hundred couples over the years, so um, been quite involved for a long time. Fantastic, thank you. So if I've understood you right, you, you work both with couples within the church and couples who, who are not, wouldn't necessarily call themselves Christians. So I wonder, from that kind of combined experience, can you give us any sense of what you think are the particular um, challenges that Christian couples face and the way that faith can help people working through issues in marriage? Yes, yeah, so as, as John says, I do do a mixture of Christian and non-Christian couples. So we have lots of Christian couples referred in because we're a Christian charity, but then also lots of couples um, who are referred in by social services who are struggling with quite high levels of conflict in the home. So kind of see both sides. Um, definitely um, working with Christian marriages, um, one of the main differences for me is that our commitment as Christians is to our husbands or wives, but also to God in our marriage. Um, so unless there are some very, very good reasons for um, example, abuse um, or uh, yeah, some, some really strong reasons, unless there are these very good reasons, then we are absolutely committed um, to staying in our marriages, uh, which means that we have no choice but to keep working through our issues. Um, so I have always found that quite helpful. I have to be careful because Tim's here. When I normally talk <laughs> and do this stuff, Tim is not here in the audience, so I could tell all sorts of stories, and he's never here to defend himself, but now he's watching. Um, so, um, but in, seriously, but so a, a while ago, I had a non-Christian friend said to me, um, who was trying to decide whether her marriage was the right thing, that she felt they'd grown apart, and she said that she really envied my lack of choice, that I had no choice about to stay in. I thought, actually, it is freeing to, to have that choice almost taken away, because my commitment is to God within my marriage as well. Um, one of the other ways I think it really helps is knowing that God is 100% behind your marriage. So um, I think that can really help you approach it differently. So often when couples are struggling, Christian couples are struggling, one of the main questions is how would, do you think that God is 100% behind your marriage? And if you do, what difference would that make to how you behave? Um, and that actually can transform um, some people's approach to their marriages. So it becomes... I was going to say, um, from a marriage that may be experiencing doubt to a marriage that has no doubt, but still has lots of issues and stuff to work through. Mm. So I think that's some of the main... Oh, I'm well prepared. Look, I've got all my notes. <laughs> um, so, and then challenges. I think there are some challenges that are really specific to Christian couples. So uh, particularly see really high stress levels amongst Christian couples um, that we work with. And um, because they are heavily involved in church life and Christian life, um, and that can take up a lot of time and put a lot of demands on you emotionally. And sometimes if stress levels are very high, uh, you just don't have the emotional capacity to work on your marriage, keep engaged in your marriage, and also to work on issues that come up. Uh, so often we work with couples to look about reducing their stress levels. So I'm not standing here and saying don't get involved in church life and don't do anything at church, but uh, just, keep, just keep it all in balance. Um, I think also sometimes... People in church may be a bit fearful of um, seeking support because they don't want to admit that things are difficult. Um, I think that can be quite hard. Um, and perhaps sometimes maybe we're not quite quick enough to get support around issues around abuse um, because we have a misplaced sense of loyalty um, and, um, and fear of speaking out. Mm. So I think that's probably my main. Fantastic. Stuff. That's so helpful, so insightful. Um, hey, this is an impossible question for sort of a minute's answer, but just give us... Bullet points, a few top tips for building a healthy marriage. What would you say after yeah, all that experience? Yeah, oh gosh. So that's really hard. So where to start? So I asked, when I, John, I did know this question beforehand. So when John asked me, I asked some, um, some of the other, 
part of a group that supports marriages across the South. And uh, I said, what would they say? And every single person said something different. <laughs> so I'm going to say, um, these are sort of some of the things that we came up with. So God at the center. Um, really important, I think, be realistic in your expectations of marriage. One of the things that I found really helpful is when I was working as a divorce lawyer, I was, I was up in London, I hadn't even met Tim, I wasn't a Christian. We had a visit from a relationship charity called One Plus One, which was in its infancy then, but which now is one of the biggest charities. I don't know why they would come to see divorce lawyers, but they were. So they said, um, they, they said it is completely and utterly normal in a happy and healthy marriage to have some really, really difficult patches, and that's okay. That doesn't mean there's a disaster, it doesn't mean you married the wrong person, that's normal. So I think being realistic and expecting difficult times um, is, is really important. Keep communicating. Um, if you try and develop some positive habits around communication when times are good, then those habits are in place um, when things get a bit more stressful and we have difficult times, which we all have. There's different seasons in everybody's life and in your marriages as well. Um, read books on communicating in marriage, attend church marriage enrichment days. They're very good. Um, the other thing is date night. Again, it sounds really boring, but it's really important once a week if you can. Make, even if it doesn't have to be going out, just making time for yourselves. There's no way that you can develop a really good, strong relationship if you actually physically have no time with each other. But it is easy for that sort of stuff to, split, uh, to slip. Um, and there is some research that says um, that actually, if you're in a difficult season, so if you've got chil young children and it's almost impossible to go out and have any time with each other, um, then once a month is enough, this is what the research says, once a month, just one evening a month together is enough to get your relationship through that patch, to keep you in tune enough to get through it until you come out the other side and you've got a bit more time with each other. I've got two more things, so I keep going. Go I'm on, going yeah, on. Great so, um, so, uh, so the other thing is small decisions make a difference. So um, really important to say, nobody sets out to have an affair, for example. Uh, really important to say no to the cup of coffee, uh, before it becomes lunch out, before it becomes a drink after work. So the small decisions at the beginning of things are really important. And the last one is seek support before um, issues become insurmountable. Thank you. Um, th th another tricky one, but the passage we just looked at is obviously pretty controversial. I, we've debated it a little bit as well. <laughs> I know some bits, um, there are some interpretations of it that, uh, that you find tricky. But you're incredibly experienced at working with couples. And so... From that work, what, what differences between the man and the woman does, does marriage often kind of highlight? And, and how do we then handle those within a marriage? Yeah. Just in 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> There's no chance. Right, so really quickly, uh, I do tend more towards the mutual submitting part than the later verses. But, um, but obviously, John, actually, that sermon was... It was brilliant. I found that really thank helpful, you. so thank you. Um, just So just really quickly, acknowledging our differences um, is just really important. Uh, apart from the obvious physical differences, there are other things that um, biologically are different. So, for example, men um, have less color cones in their eyes than um, women, apparently. So when men see purple, women see grape, lavender, um, all sorts of different colors. So when I hold up two shades of gray and ask my husband to tell me which one he prefers, and he can't see the difference. He genuinely can't see the difference. <laughs> um, and I won't go on to uh, yeah, multitasking. But so, um, and the other, I think, one of the other main differences, I'm trying to be really quick now, John, You're doing sorry. great, you're doing great. Gender differences between women, um, between men and women. Uh, one of the main things is that men, women tend to have closer female relationships with, with their friends. 
whereas men uh, can obviously sometimes that's a bit less so. So sometimes in the marriages that are struggling, um, the male French, ma the men have no close friends and they are dependent upon their, their wives for all their emotional support, which is impossible for any one person to provide. So male friendships, encouraging male friendships is, a, is really important. Mm. Um, so just, yeah, the, so, but I was going to say that actually in my experience, working with Christian and non-Christian couples, it is absolutely true to say that I think men have a deep need to feel respected in their relationships and women have a deep need to feel loved. Uh, We've obviously, heard that before somewhere, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> obviously you. we do all need to feel respected and loved, as John said, but actually in the Christian and non-Christian couples, absolutely that's been my personal experience in working with them as well. Fantastic. Thank you. And um, finally, if you could say one thing to any of us here who may be struggling <laughs> yeah. in our marriages right now, what would your, your first step piece of advice yeah, be? Yeah, just get support. Um, so Above Bar Church has a fantastic dedicated team um, to, who will support marriages. Um, I'm told that you go straight to Paul and Di Alcock, um, <laughs> <laughs> or you can email um, marriage support at abovebarchurch.org.uk. I think that's right. Yeah, so get support. Don't hesitate. Do it before it's too late. Fantastic. Okay. Helen, thank you so much. Can we express our appreciation? Thank you.